You're listening to the Cyberwire Network, powered by N2K. And now, a message from Cyberbit. Mastering cybersecurity is like mastering a sport. You build muscle memory through rigorous practice. Then you train as a team to foster cohesion while operating under pressure. Like athletes, cybersecurity professionals thrive on hands-on simulation. But traditional courses, certifications, and open-source labs won't build you a winning team. You need Cyberbit. Cyberbit offers a hyper-realistic simulation environment for your SOC, IR, and C-suite to refine your skills. All using the market-leading SIMs, EDRs, firewalls, and WAFs they use every day. Cyberbit is offering CyberWire listeners a free live fire exercise. Sign up your team now at cyberbit.com slash cyberwire. Investigation into Argentina's power failure continues, with preliminary indications suggesting operational and design errors were responsible for the outage. Russia reacts to reports that the U.S. staged malware in its power grid. Iran says it stopped U.S. cyber espionage. ISIS worries about its vulnerability to Bluekeep. And a breach at Eat Street illustrates some of the features of third-party risk. From the CyberWire studios at Data Tribe, I'm Dave Bittner with your CyberWire summary for Tuesday, June 18th, 2019. Investigation into the South American grid failure centered on Argentina proceeds, but remains in its early stages and no cause has been publicly identified, according to AFP and other sources. The blackout is thought to have cascaded from a local failure. Operational and design errors are thought to be at fault. Officials in Argentina say, according to the AP, that while a cyber attack is a possibility, that seems unlikely. Reports of U.S. staged malware in Russia's power grid, presumably held there for retaliation against future Russian cyber attacks on U.S. targets, stand about where they did yesterday. The reports are unconfirmed publicly and at least partially denied by the U.S. TASS is authorized to state that Russia regards cyber war with the U.S. as a hypothetical possibility, that while it's accustomed to U.S. misbehavior in cyberspace and elsewhere, Russia is quite capable of protecting its grid. Thank you very much. Lawfare has a useful account of how the laws of armed conflict might apply to what would appear to be a long-running, low-level conflict in cyberspace that many think has the potential to produce kinetic effects. The piece argues that there's at least a plausible case to be made that U.S. staging of malware in the Russian grid represents a, quote, countermeasure responding proportionally to Russia's activities in U.S. energy systems, quote. That there have been such Russian activities for some time seems probable, to say the least. Last week's warnings about the appearance of Xenotime reconnaissance in U.S. utilities are the most recent reports of such cyber incursions. It's worth noting that few, if any, are saying that the U.S. has actually induced blackouts in Russia, Johns Hopkins University's Thomas Ridd, a scholar whose interests lie in cyber conflict, had observed on Twitter that telling someone you've put malware in their systems blows the capability. That is, it alerts the opposition and helps them find and fix what you've done. He offers this as general grounds for skepticism about the story, 
and as far as that goes, he's surely correct, and it would be wise to await more information. On the other hand, if the aim is deterrence, then you naturally want your opposition to know. They're not deterred by what you might do unless they're aware of what that might be. There's that saying, when it comes to breaches, it's not a matter of if, it's a matter of when. But it's also a matter of how long. The amount of time an adversary stays in your system, also referred to as dwell time. Jack Danahy is Senior Vice President of Security at Alert Logic. It would be great if dwell time weren't as important if people could simply feel perfectly protected all the time. But in reality, we know that a dedicated attacker will usually find a way in. And so therefore, dwell time is a really important measure about how quickly that intruder will be found and caught and stopped. So over the past probably decade or so, we've actually seen dwell time improving. There were points in our history where dwell time was measured in years. But what we find now is that dwell time has been reduced, but it's been reduced to months. And the unfortunate part of that is good attacks, successful attacks, are successful in compromising system in seconds or in minutes. And they're exfiltrating data just as soon as that happens. And so therefore, the fact that it will take weeks or months to actually discover that that's ongoing and to find a way to contain it makes it a real problem. Right? The dwell time continues to be too slow in comparison with the speed with which the damage is happening. Can you help me understand what are the different reasons for a long dwell time? Is it a tactical sort of thing? I can imagine there are some cases where someone would want to get out in and out as quickly as possible, but I suppose there are other times when they want to stay in that system. You know, a lot of these compromises can have multiple purposes. Over the last few years, we saw a real rise in what I think of sort of like smash and grab kinds of attacks, like ransomware. The evidence of the attack is the benefit of the attack, that they attack and then they want to tell the victim, I've broken into your system, give me some money, or I'm not going to give you your data back. And so in that case, dwell time was very, very short. But if you think about a more strategic attack where they're trying to exfiltrate data, whether it's credentials or financial information or trade secrets, the best way for the attacker to do that is to remain on that system for a long period of time to take out as much data as they can and not to make themselves so instantly discoverable. And for some of the other monetization strategies, things like cryptojacking, they also want to hang around for a long time because those miners are continuously using those system resources to generate cryptocurrency. They also don't want to be you know, detected very, very quickly. And so what we see happening, and you see some of this in, in reporting that came out in various uh, analyst positions, you actually see that the first forms of attack are getting on the system, but then the next three things that these organizations are subject to is actually these persistence strategies. How do they create backdoors and how do they stay in those systems? Why the plateau? Why, why have we not continued to get better with this? I think it's a combination of things. The, the threat surface itself, meaning the way in which organizations are expanding their use of technology and their use of platforms, has caused it to be a really dynamic environment and maintaining visibility across it can be hard. Uh, a second piece is that a lot of the more virulent attacks are now applying themselves almost as commodities across organizations of all sizes. And so we're seeing a lot more attacks against the small, medium-sized enterprises who may not have the capabilities and resources to be watching closely. So that amount of threat service that has to be covered, the way it changes dynamically, combined with the style of organizations that are being attacked, it creates a natural opportunity for the criminals to get on and stay on. What are your recommendations? How can folks uh, get a better handle on this? Well, I think, number one, 
opportunities like this, where people can learn about the fact that dwell time is a considerable problem, that they have to be watching all the time across their entire systems to make sure that these things aren't happening to them, is, is the number one piece of awareness for people. Uh, number two is understanding that the attacks themselves are changing, right? We've seen hundreds and hundreds of new types of attacks that come. We've got dozens of threat researchers who are out there gathering the intelligence about what's changing in the attack profile. And the types of attacks are changing as well. So you have to be vigilant across all your platforms, but you also have to make sure that you're looking for all the things that may matter. And then when those things are happening, you also have to have the capability to recognize them and respond to them, right? Because the ultimate benefit of shortening dwell time is being able to stop the attack and get those people off the system, get those folks off the system before more damage can happen. That's Jack Danahy from Alert Logic. Iranian official media, without providing much detail, says that Tehran has detected and thwarted a U.S. cyber espionage campaign, which they attribute to the CIA. ISIS, from its diaspora in cyberspace, is said to be expressing an interest in protecting its adherents from Blue Keep exploits. Homeland Security Today says the Electronic Horizon Foundation, an ISIS help desk, is warning about the risk of Blue Keep-based attacks. It's noteworthy that ISIS is concerned about its own exposure to Blue Keep. And it's not just ISIS. TechCrunch reports that the U.S. Department of Homeland Security has developed a remote code execution proof of concept exploiting the bug. DHS's Cybersecurity and Infrastructure Security Agency, CISA, says that it successfully executed remote code on a Windows 2000 machine. Microsoft, of course, stopped supporting Windows 2000 back in 2010, and so Redmond's Blue Keep fixes don't apply there. We hope Windows 2000 is far, far in your rearview mirror, but in case it's not, if you can, upgrade. Eat Street, an online food ordering service, has disclosed that it sustained a data breach. Unauthorized parties were in Eat Street systems from May 3rd until May 17th, at which point they were detected and ejected. Customers who purchased food through Eat Street's website or app which is available on Google Play, might have lost data that includes names, credit card numbers, expiration dates, card verification codes, billing addresses, email addresses, and phone numbers. Also exposed were data Eat Street had on its partners, including participating restaurants and the delivery services that actually brought the food to the customers. Eat Street says it's notified credit card companies to be on the lookout for attempted fraud. ZDNet has been contacted by the person or persons who claim responsibility, and it's a familiar name, Gnostic players. ZDNet says, Over the past few months, this hacker has stolen and put up for sale 1.071 billion user credentials from 45 companies. In the Eat Street case, he claims to have taken 6 million user records. Whether that's 6 million individuals' records or whether Gnostic players is counting each data element as a record is unclear. We heard from security firm Panaray's CEO, Matan Orel, who sees this as another instance that demonstrates the ways in which an organization's security extends to its supply chain and into regions that are not really under its direct control. To form a business relationship, Matan Orel suggests, is inevitable to assume risk. The lessons Panaray's draws is that companies need to vet their prospective partners from the point of view of security, taking into account their postures, practices, and procedures, and working with the partners to close security gaps before they're onboarded. 
and even when the partnership is concluded, some form of continuous monitoring is in order since security is an ongoing process. We're accustomed to hearing about and maybe even thinking about third-party risk. Panarays, and they're not alone here, makes a good point. An organization's supply chain risk runs beyond third parties. Panarays talks about fourth-party risk, and that indeed seems depressingly plausible. They sensibly stop there, but why not fifth or sixth or even greater levels of risk? At some point, one would have to stop. If anyone has any persuasive reasoned account of where, if anywhere, an organization could draw a line in its due diligence, we'd be interested to hear about it. Seriously. It would be a shame if we wound up in the position of the philosopher William James, who, in conversation with a society lady given to esoteric speculation, heard from her that the world rested on the back of an elephant, who in turn stood upon the back of a turtle. To James's question, And what, madam, does the turtle stand? She replied firmly, It's no good, Mr. James. It's turtles all the way down. Just what do you think you're doing, Dave? And finally, yesterday's daily podcast erroneously said in an aside that in Stanley Kubrick's film 2001, HAL 9000 killed Dave Bowman. In fact, the computer killed, at least, Frank Poole, V.F. Kaminsky, and J.R. Kimball. The latter two were in suspended animation. HAL 9000, a native of Urbana, Illinois, we understand, only tried to kill Dave Bowman, but astronaut Bowman was in fact the only survivor. The Cyberwire regrets the error. Every day, your IAM tech debt grows. Your multi-generational services struggle to work together. Building an identity fabric can fix this. It makes all your identity tooling stronger and allows you to connect any app to any service you want to use with zero coding, zero maintenance, and zero app downtime. Strata's identity orchestration platform separates the identity logic from your applications so you can optimize existing IAM tools and manage them in a single control plane. Now, every vendor, standard, and architecture work together. In short, building your identity fabric means you can secure your non-standard apps, keep your complex access policies, retire outdated IDPs, and modernize in record time. So build your fabric with Strata Identity and get rid of tech debt for good. Visit strata.io slash cyberwire, share your identity priorities, and receive a pair of AirPods Pro. Offer valid for organizations over 5,000 employees. Connect today at strata.io slash cyberwire. The IT world used to be simpler. You only had to secure and manage environments that you controlled. Then came new technologies and new ways to work. Now, employees, apps, and networks are everywhere. This means poor visibility, security gaps, and added risk. That's why Cloudflare created the first-ever connectivity cloud. Visit cloudflare.com to protect your business everywhere you do business.
And joining me once again is Ben Yellen. He's a senior law and policy analyst at the University of Maryland Center for Health and Homeland Security. Ben, it's always great to have you back. We had an article come by. This is actually from Car and Driver, and it is license plate readers are dealt a blow in Virginia, but privacy is still a rare commodity nationwide. You and I have talked about these license plate readers before. What's the latest here? As you know, license plate readers are able to take real-time photographs of people's license plate, put them in a giant database, and that information can be used to collect all sorts of identifying information on individuals, where they are at certain moments. You know, I watch a lot of Law and & Order, and they're always using license plate readers to see, you know, who's driven into New Jersey, where can we chase the suspect? Uh, <laughs> so they're very prominent uh, in their usage. What this article lets us know is that one county in Virginia, Fairfax County, which happens to be, I believe, the most populous county in Virginia, uh, their court ruled against the use of license plate readers absent some sort of specific articulable reason for that information to be collected. Normally, and this is how it works in probably 99% of counties and states across the country, there are virtually no legal limits on the collection of automatic license plate readers. This is largely due to a Supreme Court doctrine called the Plain View Doctrine. You can't really have any expectation of privacy in anything that you put into the Plain View that any law enforcement officer could spot doing a routine you know, patrol on the street. Perhaps that concept is a little bit outdated when we're talking not about one single law enforcement officer using his Polaroid to capture a license plate, <laughs> but we're talking about a systematic effort uh, an automated effort to collect every single license plate that goes through a particular turnstile, a particular area. Th this type of license plate reader can hold a lot of information, and it's completely suspicionless. Law enforcement, for the most part, does not need to have a reason to collect this information. But led by the ACLU, drivers in the county of Fairfax, Virginia, sued and got an injunction against the police department in Fairfax saying that in this particular county, the government actually has to have a reason to collect somebody's license plate. This isn't that strict of a standard. It's not saying that you have to have probable cause that somebody has committed a crime. It just has to, you have to, law enforcement has to come up with some justification about why this um, private information is collected. Yeah, one of the things that fascinates me with this topic that I wonder about is the difference between the collection of the information and the analysis of the information. In other words, I can imagine a scenario where these cameras are out vacuuming up all the information, but law enforcement isn't allowed to look into that bucket of information without a warrant. So the information is there and it's available, but I have to convince a judge that I, what I'm looking for is legitimate and that the scope of what I'm looking for makes sense in terms of being narrow enough. This is such an interesting question. We see it a lot in all types of Fourth Amendment cases. If you're collecting a haystack of records, then do you really have a privacy interest in a simple needle of that haystack? And what other courts and analysts have said is, you know, think about doing a control F search and a 100-page Word document. Mm -hmm. In order to see if the word that you've identified is contained in that document, you necessarily have to search through every single word. If you have a database of license plates that have been subject to these automatic readers, they are necessarily all going to be scanned when you're doing a search for um, an individual license plate. Now, whether that's problematic from a civil liberties perspective is going to depend on individual tastes. But I think certainly courts have acknowledged that a person 
potentially could have a privacy interest simply in the collection of that information, even if it specifically has not been analyzed. Well, this is one that continues to uh, evolve, and uh, we'll keep an eye on it. Ben Yellen, thanks for joining us. Are lengthy security reviews pulling attention away from your security program? With the largest network of trust centers, Vanta can help you streamline security reviews to win customer trust, save time, and close deals fast. Proactively demonstrate security by showcasing key resources like your SOC 2 or ISO 27001 and provide real-time evidence for passing controls. And when a security questionnaire is required, Vanta takes the first pass for you. Visit vanta.com slash cyber to take a self-serve tour. That's vanta.com slash cyber. And that's the Cyberwire. For links to all of today's stories, check out our daily briefing at thecyberwire.com. And for professionals and cybersecurity leaders who want to stay abreast of this rapidly evolving field, sign up for Cyberwire Pro. It'll save you time and keep you informed. Listen for us on your Alexa smart speaker, too. The CyberWire podcast is proudly produced in Maryland out of the startup studios of Data Tribe, where they're co-building the next generation of cybersecurity teams and technologies. Our amazing CyberWire team is Elliot Peltzman, Peru Prakash, Stefan Vaziri, Kelsey Bond, Tim Nodar, Joe Kerrigan, Carol Terrio, Ben Yellen, Nick Vilecki, Gina Johnson, Bennett Moe, Chris Russell, John Petrick, Jennifer Iben, Rick Howard, Peter Kilpie, and I'm Dave Bittner. Thanks for listening. We'll see you back here tomorrow. And now, a word from our sponsor, Zscaler, the leader in cloud security. Cyber attackers are using AI in creative ways to compromise users and breach organizations. In a security landscape where you must fight AI with AI, the best AI protection comes from having the best data. Zscaler has extended its zero-trust architecture with powerful AI engines that are trained and tuned by 500 trillion daily signals. Learn more about Zscaler Zero Trust plus AI to prevent ransomware and AI attacks. Experience your world secured. Visit zscaler.com slash zero trust AI.